You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Angie from All Creatures Podcast. Today, I'll be talking with shark expert, Dr. David Schiffman about why sharks matter. David is an interdisciplinary marine conservation biologist that has been researching sharks for years. He is also a huge proponent on educating the public about why sharks matter. So today he'll be answering several questions about sharks, shark conservation, hopefully busting some shark myths and getting us all to fall in love with these ancient creatures. So, hello, David. Are you there? I am. Thanks for having me. Oh, I am so excited to talk to you. Uh, This month, we're talking all about the oceans and several species that inhabit the oceans and why we want to save them. And of course, with Shark Week here, uh, the first thing that comes to mind are sharks. So, it's just a pleasure to be talking to an expert today and With that, uh, David, would you mind giving our listeners a little bit of background about yourself? Sure. So I currently live and work in the Washington, D.C. area, uh, where I work part-time for an environmental nonprofit group called the Marine Stewardship Council. I also teach and do research through Arizona State University. Um, I teach a marine biology class, and I do some science policy research with them. I also run my own consultancy Uh, where I do sort of environmental science messaging and things like that. And I also do a lot of freelance journalism and writing. And I've I've, uh, just written a book about shark science and conservation that's coming out in May of next year. Oh, my gosh. You are a busy, busy guy. Never (laughs) never a dull moment here. I love that. Yes, I work for a couple colleges, too. And so it's it's fun to have different little entities and, uh, and help spread the word, right? And now, David, before we dive into shark and shark conservation, when you were a kid, did you always want to work with marine animals or sharks specifically? I did. Um, And I I, I do a lot of outreach to school groups. And I always stress when I tell them this story that it's okay if you don't know what you want to be when you grow up yet. Uh, But I'm very lucky that I've I've always known that this is what I wanted to do. There are pictures of me when I was three years old with shark T-shirts and shark toys and things like that. Awesome. Uh, It has been my go-to gift for family members my entire life is something with a shark on it. Uh, And I'm just very fortunate that I've always known that this is what I want to do. And I'm currently living my childhood dream, which is pretty cool. That is so... I feel like most kids... Yeah. I feel like most kids go through a shark thing or a dinosaur thing. At mm-hmm. some point, and I actually went through both of those, but I decided I would rather be on a boat in the Caribbean than in the deserts of Montana, and rather I would rather uh, be spent spending my life trying to stop things from going extinct than trying to understand why other things already went extinct. Wow, yes, that makes a lot of sense. Currently, my little boys are super fascinated by all things in the ocean, and definitely dinosaurs. So um, I might have to have them listen to your advice about being on a boat boat versus being (laughs) in the hills out in the sun. Uh, But we're really lucky where we live in Gainesville. They can go shark teeth hunting in the stream beds here. I just did that this past weekend in coastal Maryland at Calvert Cliffs. Uh, That was our first first post-pandemic out-of-town adventure. It was fun. Yeah. And did you find any? 
We did. Uh, they went to uh, our friend's kids that were there. Uh, that got nothing that I would call display quality, but sure. something that for a, a five-year-old is a, is, is a thrill. Uh, so yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's it's definitely a, a great way to get kids interested in it. And my boys think they're going to find a megalodon tooth, but I don't have the heart to tell them that they're <laughs> that's probably not where we're searching the streams uh, in our local town. We need to go to some bigger rivers in Florida if that's going to happen, and probably be able to dive and have a team and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, but then as your career evolved uh, with grad school and since then. Do you have like a favorite shark interaction story from all your experiences? Yeah, there's just been so many that I've really enjoyed. Um, I have been able to see, I keep, I've kept track of this since I was little. I've now seen uh, 54 species of sharks, wow. uh, which is less, which is a, a, a little more than 10% of them. So there's a lot of species of sharks out there. Yeah. The, uh, I have, most of those have been, on vacation, scuba diving, or visiting aquariums when I travel. But a lot of that has, I've done research on 21 species. Um, and I've just really enjoyed all of it. There have been some, I, I've never had anything I would call a close encounter that would be uh, frightening, except uh, when I did my first night dive when I went to scuba camp. Like all the cool kids, when I was in middle school, I went to marine biology and scuba camp. That is very cool. I love that. Uh, the, on our night dive, they they warned us, um, don't shine your light on pre on fish, because what you're doing is shining a spotlight on a prey animal for all the predators nearby. So you're supposed to sort of angle it down rather than in front of you. And I just briefly angled mine in front of me, and there was a snapper just sort of hanging out there. And a large bull shark came from right over my head and picked it off. Uh, and I needed to change my wetsuit after that, but... <laughs> It was I, a, it, I, I was never in any danger from the bull shark, but it was also quite large and right behind me and I had no idea it was there. Uh, it's still amazing to me that big animals like that can just make no sound at all that we can hear. Yeah. Wow. And and that kind of leads me into the next thing about sharks and shark week is they're often, at least when I was growing up, uh, they were vilified a lot in pop culture uh, and I was scared of them. I was glad that I grew up in, around the, on the Great Lakes because there's no salt and no sharks, right? I think that's even on a t-shirt in my hometown. Uh, but can you help unfold or bust some of the shark myths about attacks or why we shouldn't be so afraid of them? Oh, there's so many. I don't know where to start, but uh, I'll go through a, a few of my a few of my favorites. There's this per, uh, the subtitle of my book uh, refers to sharks as the world's most misunderstood animal. Uh, there are lots of it. When I start my outreach talks at schools and stuff, uh, I, have a, I have a good friend who studies seagrass, and she has to start her talks with, what is a seagrass? I don't have to start my talks with, what is a shark? Everyone knows what a shark is. But a lot of what they know is wrong. And right. when most people think about sharks, you think about them in the context of them being mean, scary predators that are going to eat your whole family if you dip your toe in the bathtub. And that's just not the case. I've been swimming with sharks all over the world. Most I've taken thousands of photos, and most of them are really, really bad photos of sharks swimming away from you really fast because that's normally what they do when they see a person. Uh, in a typical year, uh, something like 70 to 100 people are bitten, not killed, bitten, uh, out of hundreds of millions of people that go in the water. 
Uh, if you've ever been in the ocean, there was a shark near you and it knew you were there and it probably, you probably had no idea it was there and it didn't bother you. Uh, there are some, uh, some statistics about this that always crack people up at my public talks. Uh, you're more likely to die from a flower pot falling on your head from above than you are to be killed by a shark. Uh, during that, during uh, the last year of quarantine, watching some of my neighbors try to as poorly assemble herb gardens on their balconies, that statistic makes a little more sense to me now. Yes. Um, <laughs> you are more, it, today, uh, the day we're recording this is National Selfie Day, which is apparently a thing. More people in a typical year die falling off cliffs while trying to take selfies and not paying attention than are killed by sharks. Uh, vending machines kill way more people than sharks do. Vending so, machines? Vending machines. Those things oh. are death traps and they're in every school in America. Who knew? I was just trying to get a Twinkie. Who knew? Yeah. Uh, so apparently people get annoyed with them and shake them and they fall on you. Or people oh. try to reach in and they their hand gets cut. It's They're, they're really dangerous things. Uh, but sharks are just not that interested in you. Uh, the the bites that do happen, the overwhelming majority of them don't even need uh, don't even need a band aid, not stitches. Uh, some of them don't even need anything at all. There was a, a fascinating study done by a colleague of mine, or a couple colleagues of mine, and they found that uh, of the reported shark attacks in Australia. And when you hear shark attack, you picture jaws, you picture a, a monstrous sea creature driven by revenge and bloodlust, killing people brutally just because it's mean. Uh, they found in something like 40% of all reported shark attacks in Australia, the shark did not physically touch the human. It swam near them in a way that the human interpreted as threatening and scary. And, wow. But that's, you know, that's not what you think of when you hear shark no, attacks. No, not at all. Now, there are, there are people who are injured or even killed by sharks. I don't want to minimize any human suffering. Uh, and any human suffering is a tragedy. But this is just an astronomically unlikely event. And you need to factor that in when you're talking about policy responses. We are quite, quite obviously better off with healthy shark populations off our coasts than we are without them because of the important ecological roles that they play. Well, yeah. And David, I was wondering if you could touch on that about why, why should people care about them on their shores and want to protect them and keep them and swimming in our oceans? Yeah. So predators help keep the food chain in balance. Where I'm from in Western Pennsylvania, we used to have wolves, but we killed all the wolves because who wants wolves in your backyard, right? Well, now the deer population grew out of control and they caused billions of dollars of property damage. Um, they, they cause a lot of injuries. Uh, if your car hits a big deer, you're, you're, going to have a bad day. Not as bad a yes. day as the deer perhaps, but it's mm -hmm. uh, a big animal. And they spread, they, they're all malnourished and they spread diseases like Lyme disease to humans because now they come into areas where they wouldn't ordinarily come because there's not enough food in the forest. So the food chain got destabilized. The same type of thing can happen in the ocean, but the ocean is a, the, the ocean ecosystems provide billions of humans with their primary source of animal protein and they provide jobs for hundreds of millions of humans, as well as recreation for many of the rest of us. We very much want the oceans to be healthy. Uh, when the oceans are not healthy, it's going to be real bad news for people everywhere. And sharks help keep the oceans healthy. Yeah. And could you touch a little bit on 
shark conservation? Are populations declining as a whole, or are there just certain species that are endangered and threatened? What are the numbers like, and so, what are the trends? Yeah, many. It's it's a complicated story because it depends a little bit on where you're looking. Generally speaking, worldwide, sharks are not doing great. There are many species of uh, vulnerable and endangered, or critically even critically endangered sharks by the IUCN Red List standards, and there are more every time we look. The numbers are getting worse for number of species that are in trouble. How in trouble are species? There are def, but that and that's an important story, and it's really important that people realize that. But it drowns out local, local or national scale success stories. There's this false perception among some well-intentioned activists that all species of sharks are endangered, and the only thing that we can do to protect sharks is ban all fishing everywhere. And that's not practical. There are enormous uh, colonialist or racist implications to how that's often presented, especially when it's portrayed as me, the smart white Westerner, is taming the taming savages of people around the world who, why don't they know that eating fish is bad? Uh, it's horrific, some of the, the, the memes and cartoons that I've seen environmentalists that are supposedly on my side share. Um, there are absolutely many species of sharks that are in really big trouble and need help. But there are some that are doing well. There are some that that can absolutely support small, managed, sustainable fisheries. Um, and fishermen are not evil and fishermen are not the enemy. Well, and now, David, as you mentioned, uh, different species of shark are doing fine in different areas um, throughout the world have different protections in place. So can you briefly touch on some of the main global threats that sharks are facing? And and for each of these threats, whether it's finning or bycatch, um, are there things that are being done to help protect sharks? Yeah. So the number one threat to sharks overall, by far, so much so that there's not really a number two, there might be number one and then number five, um, is unsustainable overfishing. That's humans intentionally or unintentionally, which uh, killing too many sharks. That does not mean that the problem is killing sharks. The problem is killing too many sharks. A sustainable fishery for sharks can exist and does exist. But sharks are also very, very vulnerable to over-harvesting pressure. And that's because of their life history. If you look at something like a tuna, they're reproductively mature adults and can make babies in a couple years. And they spawn. They release these giant clouds of hundreds of thousands of sperm and eggs. Uh, Sharks don't do that. Sharks have internal fertilization which means if you see shark mating, uh, you would recognize what you're looking at. (laughs) And they only have relatively few babies at a time, relatively late in life, relatively infrequently. For Mm -hmm. one extreme example of this, the Greenland shark is not able to have babies until it's 150 years old. What? Uh, There are, and the sandbar I thought I was old when (laughs) giving birth, but geez. And uh, spiny dogfish are pregnant for three and a half years. So they are my new hero. Hats yeah. off to spiny dogfish. That's incredible. So what that means is their population just can't bounce back that quickly. Right. So you, fisheries yeah. have to be managed really, really carefully to be sustainable. Um, and, but there are. Um, so you mentioned bycatch earlier. That's a big problem. That's mm-hmm. ge- that that's generally included as a subset of overfishing. It's hard to okay. sort of track down because there's also with bycatch. Uh, it's sort of become, in some cases, a misused term, because there are some cases where there are um, where something is bycatch, but the bycatch is also sold, 
Uh, right. So in some cases, it might be worth more. So you have okay. a permit for tuna, but you also catch mako sharks and you want to catch mako sharks because you sell them. Right. Uh, there, so there, it, it gets tricky and messy very quickly. So you, you, there are new terms like non-target catch and things like that. This gets confusing very quickly. Okay. Um, bycatch, for anyone not familiar with that term, if you've been fishing for fun just on a boat or on a fishing pier with a fishing rod, you catch one fish at a time, right? And mm -hmm. if, you, if it's not what you want or if it's something that's illegal, you just throw it back. With modern commercial fishing gear, you can't do that. We're talking about miles that are nets or nets that are miles long. Uh, something like called a long line, which is what's commonly used to catch tuna and swordfish, uh, might have fifty or hundred thousand baited hooks coming off it. Uh, you're not just going to catch your target species; you're also going to catch stuff that's swimming near your target species. That's bycatch, and sharks are often caught as bycatch, sometimes desirably, sometimes undesirably by the fishermen. Uh, you also mentioned finning. I want to address here that this is a point of significant confusion. Uh, finning, shark finning is the act of catching a shark, cutting its fins off, dump, and dumping the body at sea. This is done because the fins of a shark are quite valuable. They're used to make a traditional uh, Chinese cultural delicacy called shark fin soup. This is often incorrectly presented as the biggest or only threat to sharks. It is not. It hasn't been since the 1980s, basically. Uh, for one example of how this gets wildly misused, um, I, I, when I was living in Florida, uh, I did my PhD at the University of Miami. I saw maybe a dozen online petitions and like change.org or the petition site or that, that nonsense saying that Florida needs to ban the practice of shark finning. Then these would get 50,000 signatures from people. And uh, we banned shark finning in 1993. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and people don't know that. And I'm not expecting everyone in the world to know every nuance of conservation policy. But if you're mm -hmm. starting a conservation campaign that's going to attract that much attention away from other people. Well, or, or away from like other important conservation yeah. issues. Yeah. Right. And this this is not harmless. Uh, we I, I would see because of how change.org works, it's integrated with Facebook. So I can see when my Facebook friends sign one of those petitions and then I would message them and say, oh, you're interested in sharks. Great. Here's a thing you could do that's expert backed, expert endorsed, data driven. We know it'll work. We know it'll make a difference. And they would say, oh, no, I've done my thing for sharks this week. But, oh, no. So that happens yeah. a lot. Uh, so maybe if you don't know what you're talking about, don't lead. I'm not right. being elitist. I'm not being exclusionary. I'm, if you if you don't know what you're talking about, you should not be the the one cu coming up with the ideas of what to right do. or reach out to an expert. Or That's what we do on the podcast. The, yes, I can talk a lot about behavior and biology and physiology, but especially when it comes to conservation policy and being out in the field. That's that's not my lane, right? At mm -hmm. all, and that's why we'd love to reach out to uh, people like yourself that have, I mean, that live, breathe, eat this, are making, helping make the policies, shape the policies, and uh, things like that. So, uh, no, I'm really glad that you can clear some of that up because I I've been really curious about finning um, and just wondering if. I know here in the U.S. it's not a problem because of our policies, but I I didn't know internationally what the policies look like for, I guess, uh, overfishing as well as yeah, fishing. yeah. Generally, f the the shark fin trade has been significantly declining over the last twenty years, and in, in no small part because of successful environmental advocacy. But at the same time, the shark meat trade is growing, so people okay. are not dump catching a shark, dumping the catching the fins and dumping the body. They're taking the whole shark. 
uh, and selling the meat. And that's very common in Western Europe. Um, and it's very common in South America, whereas the fin trade is traditionally associated with China and Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And I have had environmental activists explicitly tell me that they find a bowl of shark fin soup repulsive, repugnant, evil. But if they see a, a mako shark steak for sale at the grocery store, that's fine because that's how normal people eat fish. And that Ooh, is super racist, yeah. as well as from yeah. a population biology standpoint. Either way, we've got a dead shark on our hands and makos right. are endangered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have also had uh, the finning is often associated with it. it's a cause celebre of the uh, the animal welfare movement because it's cruel rather than because it's unsustainable. And I have had a conversation with someone from that world who said, explicitly told me that they don't care if a species goes extinct as long as the individuals don't suffer as they're going extinct. And that is just not how I approach the the environmental that science. That seems backwards, right? Yeah, that's tough. No. And I mean, so it does sound like in certain areas, some of the policies are working. It's just more that as things change, we need to evolve with those chains and perhaps policies need to evolve. Yes. And a big, my life would be a million times easier if people who don't know what they're talking about would stop founding their own nonprofits whose only purpose is to spread their, what they consider helpful information without checking with experts Social media has been just an absolute dumpster fire for shark conservation misinformation. Uh, it's wow. been great for allowing experts to share things, but then you sure. have people who, you know, social media incentivizes sky is falling type news articles and does not incentivize well actually fact checking. Um, right. And it also, um, of course, it attracts um, more of the like macro uh, social dynamics as far as if somebody famous says something or does something, which a lot of times is interact in as scientists, we know is inaccurate. And so I'm always like, why can't these like macro influencers hang out with scientists and go from there and collaborate. Right. Uh, Mm -hmm. And instead of sometimes standing out, like you said, standing on their own on uh, maybe some stuff that's not completely fact checked. And so, uh, because I think the goal for, a lot of people is to quote unquote help sharks. Uh, I just, I, I often find that a lot of times people don't understand how complex it is. Yep. And they don't want to understand. They, it's right. one thing if you don't like, I don't expect everyone to have, to be, uh, have ever to understand every aspect of a technical and nuanced and complicated thing right when they first started. But maybe when you're corrected, um, or maybe ask if you don't know would be a good start rather than guessing sure. and making up nonsense. But also right. when experts tell you, hey, that thing you're saying is actually not true and it would be helpful for us if you would stop spreading misinformation that we have to waste time debunking to not attack us. Yes. Well, and I, and I, it's just, I think that science in general, a lot of times, you know, people like to think they're experts, but with 10, 12, depending on your discipline, year, uh, years of experience uh, and studying like one thing pretty narrow. And uh, I mean, there's a reason that you're an expert on sharks and uh, and it's hard to gain that expertise by reading an article, right? And so, I don't know, I, I always often find on the podcast, we want to, we, we try to do a good job of promoting like science and resources and getting people to, of course, ask questions and be curious, right? But then to rely more on on the experts. So 
We definitely appreciate all of your information. And we're going to, uh, I really want to hear about some of the nonprofits that you're, you're mentioning, because like you mentioned, there are a wealth of people out there doing different things. And it's always nice to narrow to narrow it down and help our, our audience determine who we should be talking to and are listening to or following and supporting. Because one of my biggest frustrations is there's only so much conservation money. It's not, it's not, you know, we're not trying to cure cancer over here, which even that doesn't get enough funding in my opinion. Uh, so there's very, very little funding for animal science in general, but then if you go into uh, conservation science, the number gets even smaller and smaller. And so the more we either waste resources or don't actually try to understand how to help these creatures scientifically, right? Like that's, I think, where your expertise and the team that you work with come into play as far as really using science to help answer the questions. And as you mentioned, there are some uh, there are there are some sustainable ways to fish that are not going to create uh, certain species of sharks to go endangered. It's sustainable. It's been studied, and I feel like that's where what we need more of, right? Mm -hmm. So I actually asked all the experts during my PhD. I did a survey of my of my field of attitudes on policy and conservation, and ninety percent of the people of the experts in my field said that. Generally, they they think shark conservation advocacy should be focusing on making fisheries more sustainable rather than banning all fisheries and trade. And when I people just straight environmental wackaloons on Twitter just straight up don't believe that result. That no mm -hmm. one I've ever talked to said that. Well, that's because you're only talking to other wackaloons. Right, right. It's a, it's about who's in your circle and uh, and and who you're listening to and who you're interacting with. And so. Yeah, it's just it's just a really fascinating question. And so you've kind of hinted on something else I want to talk about uh, with the majority of people you meet um, and help educate. Do you find that they actually want to help sharks? Uh, and then what about internationally? Uh, is, is, is it moving more towards people wanting to conserve sharks and put more regulations in place to make fishing more sustainable or to protect, like you said, the threatened mako shark, whether it's uh, policies for defending, uh, stopping them being fenned or for consumption in general? Yeah, I. it depends on which group I'm speaking to because I do okay. a lot of public and sci science engagement targeted at different groups. Right. And I've given talks to the local chapters of the Sierra Club. Those people are on board when I just say this is an endangered species and we need to protect it. Sure, fine, let's do that. But when I speak to a local fishing club, I have to couch my arguments a little differently. Uh, it depends on who you're talking to, but certainly there has been less of this idea that the only good shark is a dead shark. Um, and well, that's there's, good. Been, there's been more desire to help. But mm -hmm. I wish that desire to help was paired with a desire to learn what the data says can most effectively help. Uh, right. There's this this I uh, the the generation that my Arizona State students are, uh, which I guess is Gen Z now. Apparently, I'm an elder millennial, whatever that means. <laughs> uh, but this Gen Z, the a thing I find extremely endearing about most people of that age group that I, I speak to, they hear about a problem and their reaction is immediately, "What can I do right now to help?" And they really mean it. Uh, it's not just empty gestures. They really want to help right now. And it's an extremely unsatisfying answer to say, uh, oh, the next meeting is in September. 
uh, and we would it would be great if you could stand by to, to send a formal public comment via email. Right. Um, they want to, what can I stop buying right now? Or what can I uh, raise money for right now? Or things like that. And like, sometimes there's not something that has an Immediate. open window for public comment right now. Uh, mm-hmm. There's also people, uh, an aspect of this that I find extremely not endearing, that's often related, is not asking, oh, that's a problem. Uh, what can I do to help right now? But saying, that's a problem. I'm going to help right now without asking how. And wow. the, the first, not, generally speaking, it does not matter how smart or passionate or caring you are. The first thought that pops into your head is not going to be more useful than experts spending decades learning about it. And right. I, it's very difficult to tell people that without dissuading them from wanting to help at all. And that is a, a nuance that I have not yet mastered. Okay. Uh, but there are some people that are better at it than I am. In general, the passion that I see for people wanting to help is great. I wish that it would be channeled more towards solutions that experts and evidence and data say work rather than towards the first thought that pops into someone's head that is feel feels good but won't do much. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people like to help from their couch and things mm-hmm. like this. And I'm sure hopefully towards the end of the podcast, you're going to give us some ways sure. to do that. And we'll put it on our show notes as well. But it, it does help when you have experts on board like yourself that can steer us in our energy and the right direction because it is, I mean, we, we talk about sometimes conservation fatigue and, and things like that. And so it is important to, to really fully understand what you're doing and why you're doing it and that, and it, that it's a, I'm going to actually really help. And sometimes that's just waiting around and learning more. Um, so it takes a while sometimes for data to come in. And I mean, have you seen that with COVID-19, has there been an impact on conservation, volunteering? Uh, yeah. So I stuff? actually wrote an article about this for uh, a news site called The Revelator, mm-hmm. uh, which is an online environmental news site about ocean, how it, COVID affected ocean conservation in general, not, not specifically sharks. Okay. And there's a few things. One is it made international meetings harder. Uh, and a lot of management issues happen at international meetings. And a lot of that doesn't just happen in the sort of open discussions that can be replicated during a Zoom call. Uh, A lot of it happens schmoozing in the hallways uh, in between or over coffee or over a beer or whatever. And when people aren't able to meet, it's harder to have those sorts of discussions. And a lot of things, we've lost a lot of momentum that it was many, many years in the making. And a lot of things just sort of didn't happen that were supposed to. It's also harder to do environmental monitoring right now. Like, for example, many of the threats to ocean species were not abated by COVID. Fishing is still happening. Oil and gas development is still happening. But monitoring of that is not. And people were saying, oh, it, everyone's staying home. That must be good for the environment. Not everyone's staying home. Just the people checking that the rules are being followed are staying home. Yeah. Uh, um, and also a lot of conservation over the last dec- uh, couple of decades, we've started moving towards funding it via tourism. And there's been no tourism the past year. Sure. And I... all these people that were told if you give up fishing, uh, you'll make more money running a tourist dive boat. They're suddenly making no money. Um, yeah. And they feel betrayed and also are, have no money. Right. It's very complex. 
And that, that's not to mention the billions of masks that are ending up in the ocean. Uh, masks are good. You should wear masks. They help make you, they help make people around you safe. Uh, but dispose of it when, uh, correctly when you're done. Don't just throw it on the ground. Right. Or try to not use disposable ones if you are. If you're in... able to have a reusable one, that's great. I like those more anyway because they're more comfortable and you can have more interesting designs on them. But either <laughs> way, um, don't just don't just throw stuff on the ground. Dispose of it properly because it ends up in the ocean and that's bad too. Right. Yeah. And so as an educator, you mentioned you do a lot of outreach, uh, which is just wonderful. It's why I'm so glad to have you on here and um, and talk to us today. But what are some of these programs like? Like, what are you talking about and what other outreach are you doing in a, let's say, a non-COVID year? Yeah. Or maybe even with COVID because we can so I, online. I do a lot of public talks. Uh, that's one thing I love about the Washington, D.C. area is there's a bunch of existing lecture circuits I was able to just hop onto. I might awesome. talk at a museum or I talk at a bar uh, or go. Now into we're schools. talking. Yeah. I, I need to be in D.C. That sounds awesome. I know Gainesville has a Nerd Night series. OK, I will have to look that up. They build that I, as and, TED Talks with beer. Ooh, um, I mean, I, I definitely fall under the nerd category. The night category is a little tough. With I know kiddos. the feeling. <laughs> what do you mean the event starts at 10 p.m.? I am in bed. 10 p.m. at night? Yeah, um, yeah. The uh, I I also do a lot of social media public science engagement. Uh, I I every week I do an Ask Me Anything session um, that where I've answered thousands of people's questions. And, and if anyone just sort of has a quick question, they can just tag me, and I'll answer it to the best of my ability as soon as I can. I do a lot of writing, uh, both my book uh, that's coming out next year with Johns Hopkins University Press, and news articles and blog posts and things like that. I have an article coming out soon in National Geographic uh, about an ocean conservation issue. It's not directly related to sharks, but a, another large species that people care about. Uh, so I do I do uh, a lot. And I during the during lockdown, I was able to Zoom with school groups in all 50 states, which was pretty cool. Oh, that is so cool. All 50 states. Good for you. That is incredible. And you mentioned uh, several... Uh, nonprofits or groups that you do recommend. And so who are some of the partners that are helping sharks survive that we should we should look to or that I can link on our show notes? My go-to shark conservation nonprofit is called Shark Advocates International. Okay. Uh, it's sharkadvocates.org. It's at Shark Advocates on Twitter. Uh, it's run by Sonia Fordham, who's a legend in ocean conservation circles. Uh, she's been my conservation mentor for redacted amount of years that she wouldn't want me to say uh, <laughs> you're, you're she's, kind. she's been she is extremely experienced in the ways of ocean conservation uh, has, has been you can get a pretty good uh, history of what's been going on with shark conservation over the last couple decades just by looking at the issues she's tackled on her website um but uh and that's also a, a small nonprofit, so donations really go a long way and She's often the only nonprofit involved in a particular issue. Wow. Uh, she also gets involved in these huge coalitions um, that where there's lots of, lots of groups involved. But uh, decisions are in. We have a participatory natural resources management system in the U.S., which mm -hmm. means, put simply, decisions are made by those who show up, okay. and she shows up, and often she's the only one from the environmental side who shows up. 
Uh, okay. She also coordinates letter writing or public comment submission campaigns, um, travels all over the world, works with other experts, and tries to get scientists saying and doing the most useful stuff. Uh, it's not just uh, my social media followers who want to do the right thing for conservation but don't know how. It's often scientists. It's just not what we're trained to do. Uh, we're trained to think more data is always better, and sometimes data is not especially useful or needed. Yes. Well, that's with this podcast. It's one thing I've learned <laughs> too is is getting the word out there and and helping people understand science and getting people excited about science and wanting to know more is probably the only way that we're going to help save species uh, because that's it's it's, it's going to science is going to be our ally. But we sometimes have to be patient for the data or patient for the funding, but and know who is doing what and what's good out there. Yeah. And it's easy to say we need more data, but like you always need more data. And at a certain point you have enough data to make a reasonable informed decision. And if you wait 10 years for more data, we're not going to have small tooth sawfish anymore. Yes. Right. And that would be sad. And so you have to, you know, you have, sometimes you have to take the leap and just, uh, and go with what we know. And, and of course, hopefully use experts like yourself. And now I love the nonprofit Shark. Shark Advocates Shark Advocates International. Shark Advocates International. Okay, I'm writing it down, and we'll put it in our show notes. Uh, but then you said when you're talking to some of your students or uh, people that want to help sharks, but maybe of course can't do more donate money or do more drastic measures. What would you advise our listeners to tur- turn to if they are at home, either on their couch or talking with their friends? What What can they do to feel like they're helping? Is it only through a nonprofit like you mentioned, or is there other ways? The single most effective thing that individuals can do to help the ocean in general is to not eat unsustainable seafood. Notice that I did not say give up seafood entirely. If I did you notice that. To, if you choose to give up seafood entirely, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we are absolutely not at the point where science is saying everyone has to do that, despite what you may hear in certain bits of viral misinformation. Uh, But there are absolutely some ways of catching fish that are bad for the environment, including but not limited to sharks. And don't support that. Uh, Vote with your wallet. Um, There are absolutely sustainable options if you want seafood, as I do. It's healthy. It's delicious. It's often culturally very significant. It can be a very affordable source of of, uh, healthy proteins. There are ways to to order seafood that is, is more sustainable. And... Um, doing that is the single most most important way that people can help. You can also do things like reduce your carbon footprint. Car- climate change is not a big deal for sharks. It is for other things. Use less single-use plastic. Plastic pollution is not a big deal for sharks. It is for other things. Um, donating time or money to reputable nonprofits is great. Sharing real information from experts on social media is great, which does not mean share everything you see because so <laughs> right. much of it is just nonsense. Oh, I know. Uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, and so I, we always, uh, in my house, we use this wonderful little uh, flip book. Uh, the Seafood flip. Watch Guide. Yes, yeah, Seafood Watch. Mm-hmm. And and we love that. And that has been really, really helpful. It's, it's educated us. And I'll put some links link on our show notes to our listeners for that, uh, about what to order and what is sustainable, typically and what's not. But what if I'm just going down the street to get some sushi? Yeah. Uh, how do I find out if that's sustainable or not? Or what questions should I ask? I don't want. I don't necessarily want to be that guy or that lady. But yet I do. That's getting to the you point wanna, where you care. So I care. There, so seafood watch actually makes a sushi guide, 
Uh, okay. but the, so it tells you what questions to ask. And you can ask the, the people, how is this caught? Where, what country does this come from? Uh, generally speaking, sustainable fish costs more. So mm -hmm. if they can charge you more, they will. So if they're not saying it's sustainable and charging you more, it's probably not. Okay. Uh, but there are certainly some options that are, are healthier and more sustainable than others. There, Where I live in D.C., uh, there are places that market themselves as we are the sustainable sushi place. And I would go there. I would, That's where yeah. I would vote with my dollar for sure. It's delicious. Um, so th there are the, – the Seafood Watch can guide you with some questions to ask. The nonprofit that I work for part-time now, the Marine Stewardship Council, that's that little blue check mark that looks like a fish. Yeah. Uh, that's a little bit of a different process. Sustain Seafood Watch is a recommendation, uh, whereas uh, MSC is a certification. Gotcha. So uh, the it's it's it gets this gets very technical very quickly. But if something is listed as green on the Seafood Watch guide, or if it has the blue fish check mark from MSC, you can trust that it was caught in a way that was uh, minimizing impacts to the environment as much as possible. Okay. And if you if you choose to give up seafood for whatever reason, that's certainly your right. Screaming at people outside of a seafood restaurant is not going to win hearts and minds. Um, lying about what what the science says in viral clips or Netflix documentaries is not uh, not an especially helpful thing to do. Right. No, I agree with that a hundred percent. And and now, David, you have a very uh, nice platform, social media platform. Uh, I know on Facebook called Why Sharks Matter. Mm -hmm. So it's so Twitter, we, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Why Sharks okay. Matter. At Why Sharks Matter. And can you touch a little bit on uh, what's on this platform and how you use it to help raise awareness? Sure. So I use social media to try to educate people about what's going on in the world of shark science and conservation in service of a broader goal that people understand that sharks are not a threat to you, that sharks are awesome, that we're better off with healthy shark populations off our coast than we are without them, that many species of sharks are in trouble and need your help, and sharing ways that people can help. Uh, along those lines, I also try to promote understanding of how science works and why it's good, how sustainable fisheries management works and why it's good. Um, and sometimes my posts are just a little silly and that's <laughs> both, it's a fun use of social media yeah, and it also is in support of my broader goals of having people understand that scientists are not soulless automatons, but we have favorite movies and we have favorite bands and we have opinions about sports teams. And we go to, and we, if we can stay up late at night, late enough, we'll go to a, uh, trivia night, a nerd <laughs> night at our local bar and have yep. a beer. <laughs> Uh, and so you, men you mentioned the Shark Advocacy Advocates International, mm -hmm. um, and we talked about um, Sea Watch, Seafood, Seafood Watch. Watch. That's Seafood run out Watch. of the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Mm -hmm. uh, for your listeners in the U.S., that's great. Uh, some other countries have other equivalents, uh, but for the U.S., Seafood Watch is, is the most commonly used one. And then are there any other social media sites that – uh, promote science and uh, understanding science in the oceans that our listeners might have interest in following. So I have Twitter lists. 
of uh, hundreds of people that meet those. Okay. So I have one that I use for my Arizona State students. They have an assignment uh -huh. for marine biology class to create a Twitter account and follow experts and every week report in something fun you learned that you wouldn't have Ooh, learned otherwise. Ooh, I might borrow that for my ecology class. Sure. I really like that. It's yeah, my it's ocean folks list on Twitter. So it's a curated list of nonprofit people and industry people and science people and management people uh, that talk about ocean ocean issues in a way that I find approachable and interesting. Uh, but it's it's a passive learning assignment. It's just supposed to be check in for a few minutes a week, scroll down until so you see something that you thought you think, hey, that's neat, and then just tell me what you learned. So it's yeah. all, the, the benefit of this is learning right from the experts rather than having to wait. It takes just years for a new finding to make it into a textbook. So. Oh, I would imagine. And now, how do I get my hands on that list? On the it is a, so the Twitter lists are accessible from someone's Twitter profile. Okay, great. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely put a link to that because that sounds like, I mean, I call it the cliff notes. Like you mm -hmm. are the expert on sharks and all things marine and I will just take your cliff notes because <laughs> that's, that's the best way to go about it because you know you're in the industry, you're doing it day in and day out. So that'll be really wonderful and we'll look forward to checking that out. And now I have to mention you have written a book. Mm -hmm which is amazing. Kudos to you. Uh, I had to write a dissertation and that was, uh, I don't, I barely got through that. So writing a book, I don't know how you did it, but that's a great job. And when, what is it called and when can we look for it and how can I help promote it when it does come out? Yeah. Uh, so the book is called Why Sharks Matter, A Deep Dive with the World's Most Misunderstood Predator. It's mm -hmm. through Johns Hopkins University Press, and it will be for sale in May 2022, so next year. Uh, I already have a website uh, for it, and you can sign up to be alerted when the book is available for pre-order. You'll get an email. It will be available for pre-orders soon, um, and it is a popular science book, so not a textbook. It's designed for people who think sharks are neat and want to learn a little more, uh, but don't. it's not designed for people who have a PhD in marine biology. Uh, so it's meant to be accessible. It's meant to be interesting and engaging. Uh, and it's fun facts about sharks and a, a detailed description of all of these policy issues that we were talking about with examples and specific and detailed and thorough ways you can get involved, as well as how to spot the sorts of problematic nonsense I've been ranting about for this past hour. <laughs> how we appreciate your ranting. Somebody has to, right? Uh, help educate us. And what is the link um, to this uh, website where you can pre-order the book? I will send it to you. Okay. And I will put it on our show notes for our listeners. Uh, and then that way uh, it'll be uh, for this episode on the po podcast of Why Sharks Matter with Dr. David uh, Schiff. Then it'll have all of his links. And so you'll be able to find it there. And of course, come June of 2022, is that what you said? Uh, we will do some more cross promotion then to remind our listeners Great. Uh, that it'll, it'll be out. And it sounds like a fascinating reading for me. And since I'm not a shark expert, I can definitely hopefully hang with some of it and, uh, and learn, like you said, more about policy. Cause that's, that's what I have a lot of interest in. And I know a lot of our listeners do as well, like what's happening in other places in the world and, and where, where are we and where are we going? Um, and now because you followed your childhood dream, David, and you always knew you wanted to be a marine uh, biologist and here you are, what advice do you have for someone that wants to work with marine animals? Yeah. So, you're, uh, there 
are definitely jobs in this world. Uh, it is tricky and competitive to find them. This past year, I've been working five part-time jobs, uh, which is my taxes are going to be super fun. But at least we, <laughs> sounds we like at me. least we've been. I was going to. I know. I was going to ask if you were hiring, but uh, you're kind of yeah. like me and have lots of little little uh, gigs all over the place. Uh, at least th- this past year, we've been in the United States the whole time. We, I did a postdoc in Canada, and boy, did that make taxes interesting. Uh, but. <laughs> There are definitely jobs in this space. There are definitely ways that you can do this. Um, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what it means and what it takes. Uh, I have an article that I wrote for, uh, uh, I have an Ask a Marine Biologist column for Sport Diver magazine. Um, mm-hmm. And I have an article that gives some more specific advice here that I, you can put on your show notes. But uh, it talks about what types of jobs exist and what sorts of skills you need to get them and how you get those skills. Uh, and, and things like that, but there are it, you. This absolutely is a real job, no matter what my parents used to believe. Uh, they've they've actually been very supportive my whole life, though. I think they thought I was going to grow out of this at some point. Uh, there, so there are there are definitely jobs in this space. You can do this. It it's not what you think it is, especially if your understanding of what it's like being a marine biologist is entirely based on Shark Week documentaries. Uh, which are wildly unrealistic. Uh, but yeah, you should dev- definitely check it out. If it sounds like something, if you learn about what the jobs are actually like and you think, uh, yeah, that sounds great. I definitely want to do this. Great. Good luck. Yeah. I mean, we definitely know that our oceans need help and several marine animals. And just, I think the more people get excited about the oceans and continue to learn more, uh, even if they get waved off later on after, okay, that grad school program's not for me or this job's not for me. It's still uh, the more marine advocates we can have out there uh, that want to help use science and learn more about ocean animals, I think the better off we'll be. And now, lastly, David, I, first of all, I'm very glad that um, your parents didn't wave you off from becoming a marine biologist, that they, they helped you stick with it. That's for sure. I know my, my uh, parents weren't necessarily animal nerds, but they're glad that I, I stayed in, to this day and an and, and animal nerd. Uh, but I'd like to know about right now the one thing that somebody can do listening for this podcast when they pull over their car or they get to their desk or they get home that they can do for shark conservation? Yeah. Just think about how you interact with the ocean and make a plan and listen to it and find data to support it or find expert suggestions to support it. A a lot of these things, it's more of a long-term commitment. And sometimes it is that unsatisfying answer of, oh, the Highly Migratory Species Advisory Panel is meeting again in September, and we sure would appreciate your support between September 12th and 14th. Um, but if you but if you, if you follow me on social media, I always share ways when those things do come up uh, that people can get involved. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time. and Thanks for having every- me. Oh my gosh. Yes. And everyone listening, uh, I'll put it on our show notes, but as soon as you can, you need to start following David Schiffman at, at why sharks matter. This is handle on all major, um, social media platforms. And we'll be putting more information about, uh, his upcoming book and other links, uh, to Dr. David Schiffman on our show notes. So, 
Thank you so much for helping us uh, fall, re-fall in love with sharks and learn not to be so afraid of them and to hopefully conserve them because they really are an integral part of our oceans. And I, I mean, I always say, I always say that like sharks are like boys. They're more, they're more scared of me than I am of them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone, please vote with your dollar. Please uh, go to why sharks matter and hopefully learn uh, about more things about all things sharks and science and what to share and who to follow. And all creatures podcasts will help guide you along the way. And so David, thank you again, and hopefully we will reconnect back in June of 2022 when your book comes out. Uh, highly anticipated. I cannot wait to read it myself. So, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you very much.